Hello, uh, I'm Barbara Carpenter. Um, I'm originally an Essex girl. I was born in Essex just up the road from where some of you guys are. Uh, I was born in Chelmsford and I now live on the North Devon coast as part of the Lee Abbey community where I'm currently the senior chaplain. So this amazing reading. I wonder what the first Bible verse you ever learnt was. It's really important that we learn and remember scripture, not just so that we can recite it for the sake of it, but so that God's word becomes deeply embedded in our hearts and lives. For me, one of the first verses I remember learning was this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him may not die, but have eternal life. Here we have an amazing packaging of the gospel into a few short but powerful words. It's pretty much all there is, isn't it? And I guess that's one reason why I'm drawn to Nicodemus, for I've always been fascinated by this story. The story of a powerful, intelligent, influential man who came to see Jesus under cover of darkness. What was that about? One of the things that has struck me as I've read this passage in different Bible translations and versions is that there is some debate about where the words of Jesus end in this encounter. For some versions, the words of Jesus end, as they do in the NIV, at the end of verse 15. For others, they continue to the end of verse 21, which is where we ended this morning, with the contrasting of light and darkness, truth and evil. Why and does this matter? Two questions we often need to ask ourselves when we engage with scripture. The answer to why is probably the most straightforward. The original Greek doesn't use speech marks, which is why in many instances, things like Jesus said or Jesus replied are there, so that we can tell which are the words of Jesus. In most places, it's obvious where someone is speaking and where action or commentary begin. Occasionally, like in this particular instance, it's less clear and the reader can draw their own conclusions. And textual scholars, I believe, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, have done that down through the centuries. Many will say that Jesus' words finished at the end of verse 14, uh, remembering that, of course, the original isn't uh, divided up into chapter and verse anyway. Whereas others will say that Jesus didn't finish speaking until the end of verse 21. So does this matter? I guess the answer is yes and no. I guess, yes, it matters in that it is important for us to know what Jesus' words are. But equally, in this particular instance, if verses 15 to 21 are the words of John, they are entirely consistent with the style and content of the discussion that Jesus and Nicodemus have been having together. So we can read them either way. For me, I think I will continue to come down on the side of these words being said by Jesus, but I'll leave you to make up your own minds. So we return to the beginning of this encounter. Nicodemus the Pharisee comes to Jesus, this already controversial and troublesome teacher. He's just disrupted the usual business of the temple and said some shocking things as the Passover festival was about to begin. Nicodemus comes at night to speak with him about his teachings. I often think familiarity dulls something of the shock factor for us of scripture. This is a truly surprising turn of events. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a name that means separated one, one of a select brotherhood. 
To enter this brotherhood, you had to pledge before three witnesses that you would spend your whole life observing every detail of the scribal law. For the Jew, the law was the most sacred thing in the whole world and contained everything needed for a good and whole life. By the time of Jesus, of course, uh, the law had been so expanded that the, by the scribes from the broad great principles that God laid down, by the necessity to have a law that covered every eventuality, that it was pretty impossible for the ordinary man in the street to keep it. This was one of the reasons that Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees fell out. The Pharisees pledged, pledged to spend their lives observing every detail of this law, layer upon layer of it. And this man, the Pharisee, comes to Jesus. It is possible too that Nicodemus was not just a regular teacher himself, but one of the leading teachers of the nation at the time, if not the leading teacher. If we look at verse 10, the Greek has a the in that isn't always translated, though it's sometimes implied. The NIV says, you are Israel's teacher. Others, such as the ESV and the New King James Version, say, you are the teacher of Israel. So it's possible that Nicodemus wasn't just one of the top scholars of his day, but the main man, the Tom Wright, the Rowan Williams, the Paula Gooder, the John Pritchard, name your top theologians of his day. So maybe actually it's not a surprise that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. If he's that important, he probably felt that he needed to not be observed as he engaged in conversation with this unorthodox but intriguing country preacher. And I guess that's where I begin to find Nicodemus intriguing and endearing and encouraging, in that it's better to come to Jesus at night than not at all. Though whilst we're looking at the possible reasons for this being at night, uh, we do also have to bear in mind that the rabbis said that the night was the best time to study. Uh, certainly I hope so, I've done a fair amount of studying at night. And so to come to a study meeting at night was not an untypical thing to do for it was free of the potential interruptions of the day. Nicodemus had obviously observed what Jesus had been doing in the days since his arrival in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Jesus hadn't exactly slipped in unnoticed. The second half of chapter 2 uh, records Jesus clearing the temple courts, which immediately drew comment from and conflict with the Jewish authorities. Then John slips in this little verse. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. The word sign in John's gospel is important, though here he doesn't engage with what those signs were. It's sufficient for him to say that Jesus was already drawing people to him by the signs he was performing. And one of those drawn to him was Nicodemus. He obviously already had the stirrings of some kind of interest in Jesus. His curiosity had been piqued by what he'd seen and heard. So he comes under cover of darkness to see and hear for himself what this new teacher was about. He did have sir, the beginnings of some insight too. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. This mustard seed of faith is going to be encouraged to grow as the encounter continues. Jesus, in true rabbinic fashion, comes back at Nicodemus' opening statement with a challenge saying, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. There's not uh, 
and typically there's not an English word that adequately encompasses all the possible meanings of the word that is used here. To see, to be part of the kingdom of God, someone has to go back to the beginning and be completely and radically transformed. They need to start again, see their life as beginning again, and this transformation is the work of God. Again, not untypically in rabbinic discourse, Nicodemus seems to fix on one of the meanings to give Jesus an opportunity to expand and unpack exactly what he means. He talks about being physically born again. Nicodemus knew this was a ridiculous thing to say. He would have known full well, but this couldn't possibly be what Jesus was saying. And Jesus knew that he knew that. But it did give Jesus the opportunity to remind him of what he already would have known that the prophets had already spoken about the need for a new birth with water and the Spirit. Uh, Look at Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. This new birth with water and Spirit is the new order of the Messianic age. And Jesus reminds Nicodemus that he does know this. So Nicodemus is here in that classic situation of someone who knows that he needs to change his thinking and his life, but can't do it himself or see how it can be done. He knows that he needs to be born again, born anew. This truth of being born again is a recurring theme in the New Testament. Think about 1 Peter 1, Titus 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6. This idea of rebirth wasn't a strange concept to the Jews or to the ancient Greeks either. In Judaism, someone who converted to the faith was viewed as being reborn, and in the mystery religions of the Greeks, it was not uncommon for gods especially to be referred to as being twice born. For us as Christians, it's central to our faith, the turning away from a life lived purely for self to a life lived in company with and for the service of God. We need to be born again. A friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago now shared uh, a a piece in one of his blogs. He talked about a conference that he'd been about where Daniel Strickland was one of the speakers. And he uh, mentions that she talked about being a butterfly or a snake. It's in conversation with Nicodemus that Jesus says that to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. But how? like a butterfly that has a one-off transformation from something small to something incredible. Imagine asking the Apostle Peter when he was born again, what might his answer be? When he was fishing and Jesus asked him to follow him, when he realises Jesus has the words of eternal life, perhaps when at the transfiguration or when reconciled with Jesus on the beach, coming forward to preach at Pentecost or doing the unthinkable and staying with and explaining the gospel to a Roman centurion called Cornelius. The answer would probably be every time. Strickland concludes that perhaps the Christian should be more like a snake, constantly letting go of skin that doesn't fit anymore and move closer to God. When we focus on conversion, we think of an old set of beliefs and behaviours replaced with new ones. As we live in contemporary culture, our worldview is constantly affected and shaped. And we must see worldview not only as conversion, but as a process of deep discipling. We need to constantly be being converted and be like the snake shedding our old skin. For many of us, this is how we came to faith initially. 
But I do want us to hang on to the fact that there does still need to be that butterfly moment of radical transformation when we leave the old self behind. And this is something of what Jesus was sharing with Nicodemus. So what is this kingdom of God? For Nicodemus and the Jews, you were already part of God's kingdom if you were Jewish. But that kingdom would come at the end of history by right of birth. Nicodemus was certainly already part of that kingdom then. Now, Jesus is saying, God is starting a new family in which this ordinary birth isn't enough. And this kingdom isn't going to come at some future time, but is present now in him. John uses the phrases kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, eternal life synonymously, as no one idea can capture or sum up the entirety of the mystery. The kingdom is not a place, but rather a society where God's will is as perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what we pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a state of being, a state of living, a state of being fully alive. One of my favourite verses in the whole of scripture is this one, where Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. Living as citizens of the kingdom of God is living life to the full in a state of aliveness, Brian McLaren suggests. It's why where I live and work at Lee Abbey, we invite people into our home with that phrase, come to life. Hoping and praying that all those who visit and live in this place encounter the God who longs to bring us to life in all its fullness, in all its aliveness. And the kingdom of God arrived in style with Jesus but it's not yet fully complete. Throughout his ministry, Jesus keeps pointing to the kingdom, a kingdom where small things are important, where lost things are so precious that they're sought for until they're found, where things as the world views them are upside down. And Nicodemus goes on to say to, Jesus goes on to say to Nicodemus, you can't achieve admission to this kingdom in your own strength. It's only as we're reborn that this is possible. The two elements, water and spirit, come together. The water for cleansing, the spirit for new life and power, signifying this ushering in of the messianic age. An age characterised by the action of the Holy Spirit, that wind that blows where it will. Pneuma, the word used here for wind, is also the same word used in various places in the New Testament for spirit. Jesus rightly points out to Nicodemus that the wind is incomprehensible and unexplainable, but we can see its effects, so it is with the Spirit. We know this to be true too, don't we? We can't fully comprehend the ministry of the Spirit, and we can't explain it. We can see where the Spirit is at work even when we don't understand it. Jesus says to Nicodemus, this isn't some theoretical thing that we're talking about. We have seen the Spirit in action. Nicodemus has seen it in the signs that brought him to Jesus in the first place. William Barclay says, there is a warning here for every one of us. It's easy to sit in discussion groups, to sit in a study and to read books. It's easy to discuss the intellectual truth of Christianity. But the essential thing is to experience the power of Christianity. Speaker and her hearers, beware. So the offer is to believe that Jesus is for everyone, not just those who've been born into the right nation, but everyone. 
And all of this is then summed up with that verse with which I began. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the essence of the gospel. The initiative in all salvation lies with God and especially with the love of God for his creation. The mainspring of God's being is love. God woos us with love. I love the idea of being wooed by God. God's love is wide. It encompasses the world. St Augustine wrote, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. Nicodemus doesn't fall at Jesus' feet and confess that he believes that Jesus is Lord. But that conversation obviously did make a difference to Nicodemus' life. If you go on and read in John chapter 7, verses 45 to 52, and John 19, 38 to 42, we see the outworking of that. And finally, in John 19, 38 to 42, these loving acts of service for the one who'd given everything for him. This man who came in the darkness to meet the light of the world was transformed and began to live in the light of the love of God rather than simply under obedience to the law. So where does this gospel encounter take us? It takes us to a place where we have to understand the need to be born again and continually reborn. It takes us to an understanding of eternal life. But above all, it takes us to a place where we encounter God's love. Thank you so much for having me with you today. Bless you.